Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here are your hosts, John Joseph Adams and David Barr Kirtley. Hi, this is Dave. And this is John. And welcome to episode 77 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Brandon Sanderson author of such fantasy novels as Mistborn, The Way of Kings, and Alcatraz and the Evil Librarians. He was also selected to finish Robert Jordan's epic fantasy series The Wheel of Time, following Jordan's death in 2007. The 14th and final book in the series, A Memory of Light, is out now. Then stick around after the interview as guest geek Douglas Cohen joins us to discuss Robert E. Howard movie adaptations. All right, so let's get to our interview. All right, so we're here with Brandon Sanderson. Welcome to the show. Hello, thanks for having me. All right, so as we're recording this, uh, the release of A Memory of Light is just days away. So what will you be doing on the day that the book comes out? Well, I'll probably be sleeping at first because the night before I'll be doing a midnight release party, and those tend to go pretty late. And then I will be flying, I believe, to Minneapolis is the first stop, and I will be doing a signing there that evening. Well, so tell us about the Midnight Release Party. For quite a while now, my uh, fans have wanted me to do Midnight Releases. And so what we do is we, we pick a bookstore. It's been a BYU bookstore for a while since it's uh, the only um, local independent in uh, Provo. And we will go there and I will pre-sign all the books uh, to make it easy on people. And then... We have a party. At midnight, we start selling the book. People can grab their book and take off with it, or they can uh, come and wait in the extremely long line to get it personalized by me. Um, we do number the books at the release party, which is also kind of fun. And uh, Robert Jordan's widow will be there, right? Yes, Harriet's coming for the first time. She's going to come on down, and we're going to have her sign all the books, too. We'll do like a Q&A reading thing beforehand, um, and then Harriet's going to go back to the hotel and go to bed um, while I sit around and sign books until 5 a.m. So are people camped out on the sidewalks already? Yes, they are. <laughs> Indeed. Um, someone really wanted uh, book number one, and so he came, oh, I think, a good two weeks early and started camping. So, I mean, it's not particularly pleasant outside in Utah in December and January. So <laughs> these are real troopers. Have you been over there to bring them uh, hot chocolate or anything? <laughs> I haven't yet. I usually stop by once or twice during the lines, but I have not stopped by as of yet. I live a lot further from BYU than I used to. Uh, so, you know, I think a lot of fantasy and science fiction fans have kind of grown suspicious about whether and how long-running series are going to end. And I think <laughs> yeah. a lot of people are probably wondering, is this really the end of The Wheel of Time? Well, um, the honest truth is I don't get to say. Harriet's story now. It's it's not mine. Harry and I have talked about it, and both of us feel that this should be the ending. You know, the last thing that Robert Jordan wrote is the last chapter of this book. I I don't think that um, Robert Jordan would have wanted us to go further, and um, I think that going on to do some of the other things would, you know, it would be too much of me having to take over where for these last books that were really just one book in his notes, I've been able to follow his outline fairly closely. And yes, there were holes and things like this. And 
things I had to do, but I had an ending in sight. That target, which was the ending that he'd written, um, has guided me all along. And that kept it in the realm of being his story that I'm writing rather than my story that I'm taking over. Uh, but you think people are going to be satisfied that this pretty much ties up most of the loose ends and there's not a huge cliffhanger at the end or anything like that? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I felt when I first read it, it was a satisfying ending. I felt it was the right ending. It's been my guidepost for the entire work that I've done on this. I mean, there are going to be some holes. Uh, Robert Jordan told fans before he passed away that he didn't want everything wrapped up neatly with a bow. And so, you know, there's no major cliffhangers, but there are uh, some indications of things that happen after the series, things that continue on. And he had planned to write a sequel trilogy, and people are aware of that. And so, naturally, there are going to be holes regarding some of the characters he was planning to put in that trilogy. Uh, so what if somebody wants to know how the story ends, but they don't want to read uh, all 14 books? Could they jump straight into this one, or would it make any sense at all, or would, it just, would they just be lost? Boy, I would really not suggest that. If people wanted to jump in, the place that I would suggest jumping in would be book 11, which is the last one Robert Jordan wrote, um, which is the one that really kind of starts to take the focus toward um, an endgame. Um, and so if there's Wheel of Time fans out there that read the first few books and then, you know, said, oh, I'll, I'll finish it when the series is done and things like that, 11 might be a good place to come back into it. That one's called Knife of Dreams. Uh, so I heard that one chapter in this book is around 50,000 words long and contains 70 to 80 point of view characters. Uh, is that true? Um, it's it's actually a bit longer than that, um, <laughs> but it has fewer viewpoint characters. Um, mm -hmm. I think it's like 70 or 80,000 words. Um, and they're, they're around 70 viewpoint shifts, but there are a lot of repeated viewpoints. And so, yes, there's this massive chapter. It's one of the things I planned from the beginning. And like um, a lot of things that I tried that are kind of a little bit out of the mainstream for the series, I pitched it to Harriet and said, here's why I think it would work and why I think it'll be a great chapter. And uh, she went ahead and let me get away with it, as, as she frequently did in working on these. Um, and so, yeah, it's, there's a big, awesome, me um, meaty, long chapter at the end of the book. Um, it's not the last chapter. It's um, one of the last chapters, though. And I heard you say that this book contains a lot of big battles and that since you're not a big military history buff like Robert Jordan was, that you needed some help with those sections. And I was just kind of curious, who did you consult with and what sort of details did they give you? Well, um, Harriet is friends with uh, Bernard Cornwell um, and went to him for um, a bunch of advice on this. And so we used him as kind of a military expert. And also, Robert Jordan had two assistants. One of them um, is a military historian. He, he knows the military. He's been in the military. And those scenes were very heavily looked over and, um, and edited by him. I imagine you must have just had to endure a lot of people being like, hey, man, you don't know Randall Thor, man. And just have you had to develop a, a thick skin for that? I mean... Yes and no. I mean, I was part of Wheel of Time fandom before I was given this project, so I I know Wheel of Time fandom, if that makes sense. So when the Wheel of Time fans come and say, hey, you know, they, they pick on some pick certain characters, they'll say, like, it's usually Lan um, or, or Matt. They'll say, hey, you don't know Lan. You don't know Lan. And, you know, 
I do know Lan, and my interpretation of Lan differs from yours. And we could spend hours on forums discussing our different interpretations of the characters. Nothing's changed from the time that I was a just a fan to writing now. We would have had that same big, massive discussion um, on that forum back then as we talk about our different interpretations. And that's that's one of the um, the factors people have to deal with in me picking up the series as a fan. I am going to bring my interpretation as a longtime fan of characters. And in some cases, they're spot on with what most people think. Um, there haven't been many complaints at all about my parent, for instance. Um, in some cases, they're complaints and they're right. My, my early mat was off. And I acknowledge this. I looked at what the people were saying. In other cases, such as Lan, they're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> what can I say? I'm, I'm a fan too. And we will have these arguments about whether this character would do this or that character would do that. And you'll find that in any community. On the other hand, I have, um, I do get complaints. And in some cases, the complaints are legit. I'm not Robert Jordan. And I can't do some of the things that he did simply because I don't have his life experience. And in many ways, I'm not as good a writer as he. I mean, he was a, a fantastic writer at the end of his career after um, having, you know, grown and progressed for decades. And I'm a new writer. I've only been doing this for, what, 10, 15 years or so now. And so I'm not as skilled. And so in some cases, I just have to apologize and say, I just can't do it the way that he would do it. I have to try and do it the best way I know how to do it. But anyone who has gripes like that, they're legit gripes. And that's a good reason to just not like the books. And I'm fine with that. And um, if that really bothers you, then hopefully we can get the, the original notes released. Um, that will be Harriet's decision. After the fact, I would like to release them so that those for whom my, uh, my interpretation was not good or my failings um, ruined the experience for them, they can at least look at what Robert Jordan had and imagine their own story. So I've heard that you have 50,000 unread emails in your inbox. And yeah. I just, I just think, don't you worry about all the exciting business opportunities in Nigeria that you're missing out on? Yeah, that's not even my spam box. I'm bad with email. I'm so bad with email. Fortunately, I do have um, people combing those inboxes, watching for important emails that come my way. And I try to read a lot of the fan mail. It's hard to answer it all, but I try to read it, um, at least. You know, social media has opened up all of this, and I love what social media has done. It creates this great connection between author and, and reader which is wonderful, but it also means a lot more opportunities to do things other than writing, right? <laughs> and it seems like the last thing I need in my life are more reasons to not be writing. And so I feel bad about that, but then I don't feel bad about that. And people who know me know that sometimes you have to send a dozen emails to actually get a hold of me. That's just part of the fact, uh, part of dealing with a, with a guy who spends most of his time trying to focus on the storytelling. Uh, okay, so uh, I saw that you recently filmed yourself writing the opening prologue of your new novel, Stormlight. Uh, you want to tell us about that experience? Um, yeah, sure. I mean, I've talked about all of this stuff that goes on with social media and whatnot. And I like the the interaction you can get. You know, some artists that I, I like, they're doing this thing where they'll film themselves painting a piece. And you get this awesome thing where you start with the blank page and then you see in fast motion them painting the whole thing. Um, Dan Dos Santos did this with the cover of Warbreaker, one of my novels. So you can actually find this sped up video of him painting the whole thing. And it's 
awesome. Um, I can't do that with writing, right? It, it's not nearly as engaging to watch someone typing as it is to watch someone creating this amazing piece of art out of nothing. Um, but I, I wanted to try um, and, and see what it was like. And so I, I picked a scene. It's not actually the prologue. It's just one of the scenes that, that won't be spoilery. Um, I do these things called interludes in the Stormlight Archive where I basically write short stories in the world and put them between major sections of the of the of the book. And I film uh, films filmed is the wrong term screen captured myself typing that out, uh, starting with my little outline that I did for it, then typing the whole thing out. And then theoretically, I will uh, film myself doing the revisions. And the idea is just to, to put those things up as something fun that people might enjoy. Probably sped up a bunch since it, you know, took me six hours to write the scene. But yeah, it might be helpful to new writers. I don't know. Uh, it might be just a curiosity, but something I want to try. Did that make you self conscious at all, having that, knowing that people are going to be watching your process in action? Yeah, it totally makes you self conscious. Mostly it's the spelling. You know, I'll be typing along and I'll see that I spelled some word wrong and I'll be like, ah, oh, man, that's a word that, you know, I should know how to spell that. And so I'll just use the little Microsoft Word spell check thing and stuff. But you, it, it does actually keep you focused, though, because every time your instinct is, I'm going to go check my email or I'm going to I'm going to go check this browser. You're like, oh, wait a minute. I'm filming. <laughs> Probably should not do that. Um, so that was nice. Uh, so in an earlier episode, we were talking about how it seems like there's a disproportionately uh, high number of Mormons who get into writing science fiction. Do you have any ideas about why that might be? <laughs> Oh, boy. I don't know. Um, we all have our pet theories, right? I think it's probably, if you really looked at it, something pretty innocent, such as uh, I bet you'll find that a disproportionately number, high number of Mormons are in all writing fields just because there's a high focus on literacy uh, mm -hmm. in the community. And so a lot of people end up writing. There's probably some confirmation bias going on, if that's the right term. Um, you know, you don't remember if somebody's a Jewish writer as much as if you remember if they're a Mormon writer. Um, and so you start seeing us pop up all over the place. But, you know, it is something we discuss. Is it real? I don't know if it's real. The other, the other thing is that uh, BYU does have a science fiction fantasy writing class that was started because of Orson Scott Hart. He didn't actually end up teaching it the first time. But it was started because of him, and then he couldn't end up teaching it, so someone else took it over. And it's been going for now, you know, 20 plus years. And it could also just be the kind of, you see one successful person doing it, and it makes it that much easier for you to do it. Like, I got published in part because a writer came and taught that class while I was at BYU. This writer is um, Dave Wolverton, uh, also writes under David Farland. He, he taught the class, and it, it was a real person who wrote right and was making a living at it when everyone before had told me yeah you can't really make a living as a writer and i saw somebody real doing it and i said i i could do this too so you know those are lots of theories uh, those are the the theories from being on the inside and looking at it i'm sure people who um who are on the outside can come up with um lots more tongue-in-cheek reasons um, I, I've read them myself um, and, and get a chuckle out of them. Well, and you're actually teaching that writing class now, right? Yeah, I'm teaching the writing class now. I took it over um, from Dave after he retired. There was one more teacher for a couple of years, and then I took it over. And I've been doing it for about 10 years now. And do you put that same focus on writing as a career? Yeah, I do. Because at a university, when you take creative writing classes, 
you're going to get lots of craft discussion. And I try to do craft discussion, but you're going to get, you know, very little real world professional advice. Um, and so I try to give the real world professional advice because I'm the one who can give it. Um, I did actually have a grad student post all my lectures online last year. Um, it was part of a project for another class. Um, and so if you go to writeaboutdragons.com, um, I think that's what it is. He posted all of those, so just YouTube videos. Um, and so you can see what my, my lectures are like. And I understand that BYU actually has its own science fiction magazine. Have you had any involvement with that? Yeah, I was editor of that for a, for a couple of years. So um, it's a, it's a semi-pro zine. It was started by the same group who took that first class 20 years ago or plus now. We call them the class that wouldn't die. They, uh, they continued on meeting, started their own writing group, started up uh, The Leading Edge, which is the magazine. Um, and then just handed down from student to student from then on that they just kept doing it. It's a fun magazine. Taught me a lot about publishing and about uh, about writing, actually, because nothing teaches you about writing faster, I feel, than reading other people's horrible work and realizing <laughs> it's much like your own and <laughs> you need to be doing stuff better than that. So it seems like most of the writers that I know are either naturally short story writers or naturally novelists, and you definitely fall into the latter category. I do. <laughs> and just listening to you talk, I was actually wondering, have you actually written, have you written more published short stories or unpublished novels? Uh, definitely more unpublished novels. Yeah. <laughs> uh, because short stories, uh, if you use the technical definition of short story, I think I've actually only ever written one because everything I write goes into the least novelette length. I've written, I wrote one for Charlene Harris. Uh, she wanted it. Uh, a story for me for an anthology that sounded like a lot of fun games dead people play. And so I wrote an actual short story for her because that's just how it came out and sent it to her. But everything else I've done is novelette or novella. I really like novellas. I love reading novellas. I love writing novellas because they really are just short novels, right? You do all of the sort of things you do for a novel, but you do them in a short form. Whereas a short story is a completely different art. Um, it's, you know, it's the difference between learning to, to drive down the green and to putt, right? You know, you're using similar tools, but there's so much difference there that becoming a good short story writer takes a lot of work in different ways. And I'm very naturally a, a novelist, but I can apply a lot of my same skills to the novella form. Um, and have been very pleased with how some of my novellas have turned out because of that. Uh, so do you want to just tell us a little bit about some of the short fiction that you've written? Ah, uh, sure. I had two novellas come out this year. Um, one is called Legion. I did that one with Subterranean Press. And it was um, me trying my hand at some more uh, thriller-esque modern-day things. Um, it's about um, a camera's invented that can take pictures of the past, um, and it gets stolen. And a very interesting individual um, gets hired to track it down. His name's Stephen Leeds. And he, I did, came up with this idea for someone who was, that was a genius and who could read up on a subject and become an expert at it in a very short amount of time. But in order to store all this information in his brain, what he does is he creates this hallucination, another person who is actually a repository for that information that then follows him around and gives him advice in those situations. So if he wants to learn a new language, he can study it, and this person will appear next to him who becomes his interpreter in that language. And he doesn't actually speak it. He runs into people who have to have his hallucinatory, um, his, his figment as he calls them, interpreter 
translate for him so that he can understand and things like that. It was just a, a wacky, fun idea. Um, so that's that's Legion. Uh, the other one that I have, I'm, I'm really proud of. And if you've never tried any of my work, the thing I would suggest would probably be this. It's called The Emperor's Soul. Um, and it's the story of a woman who is um, uses a forgery magic, who is hired to create a forgery of the Emperor's soul magically because he's been wounded in the head. He's brain dead. Um, there's just a shell up there. And the people who um, are keeping him in power want to have a forged soul placed into him so that no one will know that he's been wounded and so they can keep on ruling the empire. I understand you've also had some uh, stories in some of the fine anthologies edited by John Joseph Adams. <laughs> I have. In fact, uh, John has uh, two of my shorter works. Um, one is one of these interludes from uh, The First Way of Kings, and it stood fairly well on his own. Um, we just named it after the character, Rissen, and um, it's in uh, John's uh, anthology epic. And in fact, John, the scene that I did that I recorded is actually a new interlude with Rissen for the second. Mm. Um, so, so that's, that's pretty cool. I suppose that could be publicity for Epic if you wanted to be. I've mm -hmm. also, got, um, um, a story that I co-wrote with a, a friend of mine in Armored, the anthology. Uh, um, mm -hmm. and that's a very fun story that I co-authored. Again, I don't have the military expertise. I wanted to write this military science fiction story. Um, and so I went to a friend in the military who's also a writer and we, we did the story together. All right, cool. And so then in addition to writing, you also are the co-host of the Writing Excuses podcast, which is a, a podcast for writers. And John was just telling me that Mary Robinette Kowal actually flies from Chicago to Utah just to tape the show. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, the podcast is um, successful enough. Uh, we have an Audible sponsorship that we can actually afford airfare and things like that, which is pretty cool. And so we fly Mary in because Skype is a wonderful tool, works great for an interview like this. But when it's um, a show, that you really need the energy of the hosts together. Um, and that's kind of part of what we focus on for that. We, we need to be there in person, we find. So we do it in person. Could you talk, like, what are some recent topics or uh, guests or whatever that you've covered? Uh, let's see. What Right now we've got four ways the industry is changing, um, how to write a secret history, kind of a, a subset of, um, of alternate history. Um, we've got one where we do a, we had listeners send us in questions, and we answered the questions. We do um, things like, what are your your embarrassing early projects? Um, how do you tell if your idea is too big for the story you're working on? How do you avoid discouragement? How do you handle ma multiple magic systems in one book? Um, and then we have a few before that where we brainstorm stories together and then talk about how we would outline them and, and things like that. So the, there's all sorts of things on there. We've had a lot of, um, of editors and other writers on as guests. We've top, broken down all kinds of writing topics from outlining to, to how to do characters and all these different things. So, yeah, if you're interested in writing, go look it up. There's a ton of archives. I think we're on our we're starting our eighth season, I think, or something like that. So, uh, so I saw you're also starting up a writer's retreat called Out of Excuses. <laughs> yeah, this is a Mary suggested this to do a writing retreat. People have been asking about doing this. And I, I like to do, try to do one thing like this. Um, every year in the past, I've been doing, um, one of, that Kevin G. Anderson, um, did, which is called Superstars, uh, writing seminars. And, uh, this one, I, yeah, I wanted to try doing something a little more hands on with some students. So Mary's parents have a vacation home next to their actual home, I think, or like they have, they own two houses. Or, I don't even know how it works. 
Uh, you'd have to ask Mary. But anyway, they rent it out for vacationing and things like this. And we are going to be renting it and holding a seminar in it where we will meet with listeners and um, we will all write together and hopefully record some episodes for writing excuses and to help people out. And can people still apply to that or is it, is it all folded? It's sold out in like nine minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe in a future year. But yeah, I think it was actually nine minutes. <laughs> so, I mean, there's only like 20 spaces for it. So it went really fast. And so you've also been involved recently with the Waygate Charitable Foundation. You want to tell us about that? Um, yeah. Waygate is a foundation run by Wheel of Time fans number of the Wheel of Time organizations, fandom organizations, um, have long been involved and have a good history with charitable work. And recently they decided that if they were going to be doing this and having the amount of money kind of flow through and toward uh, charities that they were doing, they should have, they should make it official tax wise. Um, they actually started a, a company, made it a, uh, a nonprofit, did all the things they needed to do. Um, I've been working on them. They put me on the board. And uh, this year, we've been um, recently been focusing on um, on World Builders, uh, Pat Rothfuss's charity, um, which is a fantastic charity for Heifer International, buys uh, llamas and things for uh, people in developing countries and teaches them how to take care of them so they can sustain themselves off of, uh, off of the livestock that they're given and things like that. It's a fantastic uh, charity. And so we've been working with that to, uh, to try and um, try and do some good where we can. All right, great. And so then just to wrap things up, are there any other new or upcoming projects that you'd like to mention? Last book of the Wheel of Time. Uh, otherwise, I'm hard at work on Stormlight 2. That's um, actually been my, my focus for the last five or six months, um, ever since I finished the, the last Wheel of Time book. And it'll continue to be my focus following the uh, the tour that I'm doing. I do also have a couple of projects that I, I started working on in, um, years ago before the Wheel of Time came my way. And which I had to put on hold uh, until now. And both of them are, are YA books um, that I've written. Uh, one's called The Rhythmatist. It's coming out uh, from tour in the summer. And then in late summer, I've got one called Steelheart, which is a, a really awesome superhero apocalypse uh, sort of book uh, that's coming out from Random House. All right, great. So Brandon Sanderson, thanks so much for joining us on Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Thank you guys for having me. And that was our interview. So thanks so much to Brandon Sanderson for joining us on the show. And as some of you may know, early in his career, Robert Jordan actually wrote a number of Conan the Barbarian novels. And so we thought now might be a good time to do a little retrospective on the various films that have been adapted from the works of Conan's creator, Robert E. Howard. So this is similar to the survey of Philip K. Dick movie adaptations that we did back in episode 68. And especially since it was just announced that Arnold Schwarzenegger will be reprising his role as Conan, in the upcoming film, The Legend of Conan. And of course, we couldn't talk about all this stuff without calling upon the expertise of the biggest Conan fan we know, Douglas Cohen. He's the former editor of Realms of Fantasy magazine, and his short fiction has appeared in magazines such as Interzone and Weird Tales. And he and John are also co-editing the upcoming anthology, Oz Reimagined, New Tales from the Emerald City and Beyond. So, Doug, welcome to the show. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me back. And so I think just first of all, I'd like to start out and just talk a little bit about who Robert E. Howard was and talk about the film, The Whole Wide World, starring Vincent D'Onofrio, which is about the life of Robert E. Howard. So basically, Robert E. Howard grew up in a small town in Texas. He lived most of his life in a town called Cross Plains, Texas. 
and grew up around cowboys and prospectors and uh, listened to a lot of ghost stories and heard stories about the Indian Wars and stuff like that. And so he developed this fascination with tough guys and adventure stories and ghost stories and all these sorts of things. And he was a very sensitive, bright kid uh, and just didn't really fit in at all in Cross Plains, Texas, and wrote a lot of poetry and kind of got interested in bodybuilding and uh, amateur boxing and stuff like that as a teenager and uh, lived with his parents his whole life and wrote stories for pulp magazines, uh, mostly weird tales, I think. And he wrote all sorts of, it wasn't just Conan the Barbarian, he wrote all kinds of different stories, you know, all kinds of different adventure stories and historical stories and, and things like that. And this movie, The Whole Wide World, it kind of covers the period. It's actually based, he, uh, he sort of briefly dated a woman named Novelin Price, who was an aspiring writer. Uh, you know, her, her friends just introduced her to Howard because he was just sort of known as the only writer around. And so they they hung out. I guess there wasn't a lot to do in Cross Plains, Texas. So they mostly, it seems, just kind of drove around and talked. And she wrote a pair of books about those years that were uh, that were turned into this film. And then Howard had always been close to his mother. And when it was announced that she had fallen into a coma from which she was not expected to awaken, he went out to his car and shot himself with a pistol. And so this movie, uh, I think, is quite good. Vincent D'Onofrio sort of, I think, captures uh, this sort of the sensitive guy in this big, uh, intimidating body that, that, that Robert E. Howard was. And, uh, for example, Robert E. Howard would, uh, apparently, as he was writing his stories, he would sort of declaim them uh, out, you know, to himself as he was writing and... Uh, there's a scene where one of the characters kind of peeks in a window at him and just sees him uh, furiously typing and shouting out the story, this very bold adventure story that he's writing as he's doing it. And I guess uh, I, I forgot to mention that he was also a correspondent with H.P. Lovecraft and that he included a bunch of Lovecraftian elements in his stories. He was also correspondent with Clark Ashton Smith at the time. You know, they were like the big three during those days. All the pulp writers, they were swapping a lot of letters with each other. And it's it's worth noting, too, that like Lovecraft, none of Robert E. Howard's work was ever collected and ever published in book form in his lifetime. And like Lovecraft, he didn't have a very high literary profile at the time of his death, but has gone on to uh, have lots of you know fans and academic attention and studies and all this stuff. I read one um, by Don Heron called The Dark Barbarian. Which was, was very, very good and very, very interesting and argued, I thought pretty persuasively that, uh, Robert E. Howard's pro style was a lot better than people generally give it credit for. People will, uh, I think criticize Howard's pro style for being careless. Um, but it does have this incredible exuberance and passion and energy. And he writes action very, very well. Regardless of whether or not you're actually a fan of the type of stories Robert E. Howard wrote, like, I mean, the whole wide world is just a flat out good movie. So even if you don't have any interest in it at all, I mean, it's definitely worth checking out, especially if you're interested in writers and writing. The one thing, the one sort of uh, criticism I have of it is not really the filmmaker's fault, but what happens in real life is that the woman uh, whose memoirs it's based on, Novelin Price, she went off to school, I think. And so she wasn't actually around when Howard uh, killed himself. 
And, you know, if you were writing the story, you would want something more dramatic to happen at the ending. You can definitely make a case that Conan was the epitome of what Robert E. Howard would have liked to be. You know, he would have liked to have been this supremely confident man around women. He had long, you know, letters with H.P. Lovecraft where they discussed barbarism versus civilization. And that was a big theme in all the Conan stories. And, you know, Howard always argued that the natural state of mankind is the barbarian. And even if he didn't, in his absolute core, want to be a barbarian, he was extremely curious. What would it be like to live in that age? So he projected a lot of that stuff through Conan, his other characters to a lesser extent, but particularly Conan. I guess we should explain that the Conan stories are set, it's on our Earth in the past, but it's a it's this whole epic that's completely forgotten. And this is uh, sort of described by Howard most famously in the opening paragraph of his first Conan story, The Phoenix on the Sword. I have that here. I'm just going to read that quickly. Know, O Prince, that between the years when the oceans drank Atlantis and the gleaming cities, and the years of the rise of the sons of Arius, there was an age undreamed of, when shining kingdoms lay spread across the world like blue mantles beneath the stars. Numidia, Ophir, Berthunia, Hyperborea, Zamora with its dark-haired women and towers of spider-haunted mystery. Zingara with its chivalry, Koth that bordered on the pastoral lands of Shem, Stygia with its shadow-guarded tombs, Hyrcania whose riders wore steel and silk and gold. But the proudest kingdom of the world was Aquilonia, reigning supreme in the dreaming west. Hither came Conan the Sumerian, black-haired, sullen-eyed, sword in hand, a thief, a reaver, a slayer, with gigantic melancholies and gigantic mirth, to tread the jeweled thrones of the earth under his sandaled feet. And so when they filmed Conan the Barbarian, they actually sort of included a, you know, rewrite a little sort of summary version of that uh, to open up the movie. But so let's uh, let's talk about this first Conan the Barbarian movie that made Arnold Schwarzenegger a star. See, John, you said surprisingly there were some things you actually liked about this. Uh, <laughs> why don't we open up with that? What did you actually like about this movie? So, I mean, there's not a whole lot that I like about the movie, obviously. But, I mean, I think there are some... Uh, cool things about it. Uh, admittedly, not cool enough that it could possibly warrant 77% on Rotten Tomatoes. I mean, I don't know. I, I would have to guess that anybody who's rating it highly on Rotten Tomatoes must be like thinking of it like, oh, I remember that movie in the 80s. That was awesome. And they haven't tried to watch it now because, like, you know, it doesn't hold up very well. I don't know. It's kind of just easy to watch and have pay attention to. And but it's like there's action like almost throughout the whole movie. And it's like, I mean, the action's not all that great, like in terms of like if you compare it to a movie made now, like in terms of the swordplay and everything, it's not all that believable. Um, you know, that's it. It's not a good movie, but it's uh, I've I've sat through much worse movies. Uh, that's yes. Yeah, so this is what you get thing, when you ask John for the the positive aspects <laughs> of a movie, right? Is that what we call a backhanded compliment? <laughs> okay, well, it's the I'll, only compliment I'll... I know how to make. <laughs> all right, I'll tell you some of the things I liked about the movie. Although uh, I, I honestly fell asleep in the middle of it. But, uh, <laughs> that but... was your favorite part. <laughs> um, but I, li I liked the snake cult. Uh, the, the plot, we should basically say, the, the plot of this movie is basically Conan versus a snake cult. And he and some accomplices are tasked to rescue 
some king or something's daughter who's uh, fallen under this way of this snake cult. And and just the idea, yeah, that, that there's this snake cult and they're sacrificing people to this giant snake and that people are so wrapped up in this cult that they want to go back to it. They want to sacrifice themselves to the giant snake. All that stuff, I think, is just really creepy and cool. I liked the character of Valeria, that she's a very capable uh, female character. You know, you wouldn't, you might expect all the women to just be, you know, wenches or whatever. But Valeria, I thought, was a very strong, uh, you know, capable character, um, an interesting character. And there's just, there, there, there's a sort of weird auteur quality to this movie that you wouldn't expect. There's like really long shots. Uh, the part where James Earl Jones, who's the head of the snake cult, he chops off the head of Conan's mother when Conan is a child. And just the way it's shot, it, it keeps cutting to close-ups of James Earl Jones' eyes. And I don't know, just throughout the movie, there's this weird languorousness to the way it's shot that you wouldn't expect from a you know, an action movie like this. Um, but so, Doug, so what did you think of, what do you think of this movie? And is the snake cult, is that from uh, the Conan stories? Well, the snake cult is really more from the Cole stories. And Cole's world is supposed to have, you know, same universe, but thousands of years earlier than a cataclysm happened. And then you have the Hyborian age when they like rise up from the remnants of that cataclysm. But it was all interconnected between like the serpent men of Cole's time and the worshippers of Set, because Set is definitely part of Conan's world. Um, what I liked about the movie, I think the most obvious thing is I actually think that the score for the movie, the musical score is great. It really captures the world. Now, if I wasn't a big Conan fan, I'll be honest, I might have a very different take on the movie. But like I said, Conan was my introduction to this stuff. So I was watching this movie as a kid religiously. You know, I watched it over and over and over. So it really, it has like a fond place in my heart. Although I will admit as a kid, I used to get annoyed. I'm like, how could they make Arnold Schwarzenegger Conan? Conan has black hair. Conan <laughs> has blue eyes. What is this? But actually, you know, I look back now, I'm like, yeah, okay. Musclebound Barbarian. Schwarzenegger's good for this. But also of all the different Robert E. Howard movies, and let's take Whole Wide World out of that, I would say of all of them, this is the one that tries the closest to capture the spirit of Conan the Barbarian, as, you know, Robert E. Howard wrote it. Because more than any other movie, it draws on, like, the original stories and the mythology. Um, there's a scene where you see Conan being crucified, and there's a vulture trying to eat him, that's actually from a story called A Witch Shall Be Born. In the original story, does he also kill the vulture by, by biting it uh, when it's trying to eat him? Yes, he does. And <laughs> that's yeah, awesome. It is awesome. I, you know, when you just like say that, like in an interview like this, and if you haven't read the story and you don't know Conan, like when I say don't know Conan, everyone's heard of Conan, but if you don't know the stories, you almost want to roll your eyes and hear that, oh, he's crucified and he bites a vulture and kills it. Sounds a little ridiculous, but that was like one of Robert E. Howard's strengths was just the narrative energy that he would bring to his stories. You were almost willing to believe things that were otherwise impossible. Well, actually, I'll tell you something else. I, I really liked actually the part where they go to bust out the um, the woman from the snake cult and there's like the big orgy. And they're like ladling the soup and there's, you see a human hand float <laughs> to the surface. There's, there's a, a, a sort of, 
uh, over the top quality to this movie that is just, you know, it's just interesting. You know, it's sort of, I guess it's a match for uh, Howard's writing that they're, they're going, they're all in on this one. Exactly. Cause like Howard's Conan stories, they were over the top, but like he believed in what he was writing at the same time. And they tried to bring that to the original movie. It was over the top, but it was taking itself seriously at the same time. You know, they weren't making a mockery of themselves by making it over the top. And also, I liked that it didn't end with a big climactic battle, which every single movie does. It's this sort of weird psychological confrontation between Conan and James Earl Jones. Okay, but I mean, Doug, you mentioned that Conan, that Arnold Schwarzenegger doesn't fit your idea of Conan because he has the wrong eye color and hair color and stuff. But there's no indication, right, in Howard's stories that Conan wears a loincloth and nothing else, right? I mean, that's an invention of of this movie or of is it Frank Frazetta's Conan artwork where that comes from? Or where does that idea of the barbarian who wears no clothes come from? Honestly, it depended on the story. Sometimes Conan might be in a loincloth with nothing but his sword and some sandals and boots. And other times he might be in full armor. But, you know, when you hear barbarian, I guess for whatever reason, you know, I guess that fed into the iconic image of what people think Conan is. And I think Frank Frazetta's, uh, illustrations had something to do with that the marvel comics had something to do with that because those were really popular for a long time and that's usually how they illustrated conan and the movies had something to do with it and after a while unless you had read the source material you kind of just assumed that's conan and you know for the same reasons people started just assuming he was a big stupid muscle-bound barbarian and the truth is you know he had intelligence when he's younger he's he doesn't understand the ways of civilization, but he was never really stupid. If you like pay attention to all the stories, there is no common tongue in Robert E. Howard's world that I can recall. If there is, all these countries still have their own languages and he'll be speaking Namedian in one, in one story. He'll be speaking Zamorian in one story. You know, he was filling in the map as king in Phoenix on the sword saying, Oh, you know, these areas, it's a little fuzzy. And that's the first time you ever meet him. So, you know, what the character that Conan actually is versus the character that people think of, two very different things. Mm-hmm. And, he, and he's also, he's as much a, sort of a thief and an acrobat as just a brawler, right? That was another thing that, you know, Robert E. Howard did with his stories. He skipped around in Conan's life. There was no chronology that he laid out. First story, he wrote he's a king. Then, like, he could be a thief here. He could be a pirate here. He could be a mercenary, the captain of the king's guards. He was leading, you know, the desert tribesmen on raids. You know, Robert E. Howard really took that to the extreme. He made Conan do everything. All right. So after this movie was such a big hit, they decided to make another uh, Conan movie with Arnold Schwarzenegger called Conan the Destroyer. And now things start going really downhill. (laughs) So, John, what do you think of If Conan? you don't mind my saying. Oh, wait, John, you didn't watch this, right? Uh, I have seen it, but I didn't rewatch it in preparation for this. Uh, largely because I, I had a limited amount of time to watch all the movies, but also because I remembered how terrible it was and I couldn't really bring myself to watch it again. So what, what do you remember about it? Oh, I remember very little, except that it was just not a good movie. But um, I, I remember there's there's like, isn't there like a climactic scene where there's like he's fighting, he's going to fight a wizard or something and there's like a hall of mirrors or something like that? That's in the middle of the movie, but... Yeah. Oh, is that in the middle? Okay. I mean, that, that's, like, really the only thing I actually really remember about it. I mean, I'm sure if you guys start talking about it, I'll remember, like, parts of it. 
yeah, I mean, so in Conan the Destroyer, a nasty queen sends Conan on a quest to uh, sort of ferry her niece, I think it is, to this castle, this magic castle, where she needs to retrieve some magic item. And in this castle, Conan has to fight a wizard, and then they get this magic item. Conan's picked up a bunch of uh, sidekicks by this point, including Wilt Chamberlain <laughs> and uh, Grace Jones. And Oh, Grace Jones was in that one. Okay. Yeah, yeah I remember that. She's sort of a Zulu warrior kind of character. And there's this thief guy and a wizard. Oh, I hate that thief. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. He's sort of the comic relief. He's really annoying. And then they finally retrieve this other magic item, which is a horn that's going to bring this statue of a god to life. Called The statue god is called Dagoth. Very obvious Lovecraftian homage there. And then the statue turns into a Lovecraftian monster, and Conan and his uh, buddies have to kill it. Yeah, and this one, it's uh, it's much more cliche. It's much more comic. You know, it's not taking itself seriously at all. Uh, and it's it's just not very good. Dave, you hit the nail right on the head. I mean, I remember when I was a kid, I saw the story when they were doing the opening credits. Where the story was by Roy Thomas and Jerry Conway. And I thought that was a sign of good things to come because Roy Thomas, like he did the Conan the Barbarian comics early on and all the fans loved him. And Jerry Conway had actually done the Cole comics for Marvel. So I thought this was like going to be an awesome story. And maybe it was before Hollywood got its hands on it. Who knows? But... I don't know. The most I could say is that the score was decent. Um, you, you mentioned something about the thief was comic relief and he was really annoying and he was. And for some reason they decided, Hey, let's make this a lot funnier and a lot more campy. Problem is that's not Conan. And it was just, it created a weird juxtaposition of you're fighting these grim creatures and this dangerous magic. Oh, but let's throw in a little humor now and again, just for the hell of it. You know, yes, Howard mentions that Conan had gigantic mirth, but that was just like, you know, if he's like throwing down a horn of ale or something, he's willing to make a joke or he could appreciate a good joke under the right circumstances. I think Conan would have been more likely to smash that thief in the face with his fist and be like, Crom, I can't listen to this guy anymore. The, the scene with the mirrors that John remembers, it's interesting to note that that's actually one of the few scenes that comes from an original Conan story. It's been completely reinvented, but that was Rogues in the House by Robert E. Howard. And there was a creature, like a not quite man, not quite ape, but some kind of beast between creature in a red robe. And he's seen through some mirrors. You know, I think of the Frazetta covers. I think the first Frazetta cover actually features Conan fighting that creature and it has the red robe. But it, it was just, it was cliche top to bottom. You know, the, the wizard was called Tothamon. Like, I don't, okay, you really had to change the name from Thothamon, who's probably among Robert E. Howard fans, the most famous Conan villain. Uh, Heart of Araman, which is the jewel they had to get. That's from, uh, the one Conan novel that, uh, Robert E. Howard ever wrote. But, you know, it was completely different in the novel and just all this other stuff is just, it was pretty awful. You know, special effects today, people will often say, oh, the computer graphics are so, they look so fake. And why don't they go back to practical effects? And I think that these movies are really uh, a reminder of practical mm -hmm. effects are not necessarily uh, 
are not necessarily a solution to the problem of monsters looking fake on screen. No arguments here. Uh, all right, so uh, from uh, Conan the Destroyer, we're gonna. I'm afraid we're gonna have to move to Red Sonia. Do we have to? We can make this. Hopefully, we can make this short. I mean, this is. Oh, well, Doug, tell us about Red Sonia. Is that a Howard character? Robert E. Howard did create a character called Red Sonia. The movie features a Red Sonia with flame red hair, and her last name it's S O N J A. All the way back in the 1930s, Robert E. Howard created a female warrior with flame red hair. She was called Red Sonia, but instead of a J, there was a Y, and it wasn't in Conan's world. It was like, I don't know, early 1600s, late 1500s, right around that time period. And it wasn't fantasy. It was a story called Shadow of the Vulture, and it was just historical fiction with a lot of action infused into it. He had one story published about her. That was pretty much it. And then years later in the Conan the Barbarian comic, Roy Thomas, the writer, and Barry Windsor Smith, they reinvented that character uh, to the Red Sonia that most people know and decided, you know, let's create another female warrior for Conan to play off of. And he just thought that Thomas thought that the J was more exotic. So he changed the Y in Sonia's name to a J and that's the Red Sonia that people know now. They gave her an entirely new origin. You know, and she was actually very popular in the comics. Uh, now she's, she's not even with Marvel Comics anymore. She's a really popular character with Dynamite Comics now, although I haven't read any of those. Yeah. And so this, this movie is, it's sort of like a parody of what a cluelessly sexist Hollywood director would make, right? I mean, You're almost being nice. <laughs> I mean, just the, the, the backstory, just to give you a sample, is that a, a lesbian queen tries to seduce Red Sonia, and when Sonia rebuffs her, the queen has her soldiers gang rape Red Sonia, and then Sonia spends the rest of the movie getting herself into trouble, and Arnold Schwarzenegger continually comes to her rescue, and he eventually tells her, you thought you could handle things without a man, but obviously you were wrong. And she says, yes, I was wrong. <laughs> and uh, and he said, he explains how he was sent to help her. And uh, she says, oh, I thought there was some other reason you were following me around all the time. And he says, oh, there, there was. And he grabs her and just starts making out with her. So that kind of gives you the, the, the level of uh, enli- enlightenment uh, of this movie. Uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, I, I, I get, I mean, the, the character, he's not called Conan in this movie. I heard, Prince Kalidor. I heard a rumor that he was supposed to be Conan originally, but they decided that this movie was so bad that they changed his name because they didn't <laughs> want its like infection spreading to the Conan franchise. <laughs> Dave, you should share that quote we were talking about that Arnold Schwarzenegger said about this movie. Yeah, yeah. So Arnold Schwarzenegger describes this as the worst movie he was ever in and says that if his kids misbehave, he threatens to make them watch this movie and that straightens him out right away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And that's my favorite thing about Red Sonia. <laughs> yeah, there's there's nothing good to say about this one. So why don't we move along <laughs> to Conan the Barbarian 2011. This was a, sort of a remake in 3D with uh, Jason Momoa, who played Cal Drogo in Game of Thrones. I had zero expectations for this, and I, I actually liked it a lot more than I thought it would. I mean, not that I not that I liked it, but I mean, it was it wasn't it wasn't as bad as I had feared. 
I actually thought it had some promise right at the beginning. Like I thought the opening part was kind of cool, but like I didn't I didn't want Conan to grow up. I wanted to watch a movie like with Conan as a kid and his dad, Ron Perlman, because like that part seemed kind of cool. But then he grows up and becomes, uh, you know, Cal Drogo. And I was like, you know, that guy did okay as Cal Drogo. But like, you know, if he's speaking in English, like, I don't know, he, he doesn't he doesn't quite have the acting chops to speak in English. Like, give him a fake language to say stuff in and then he's okay. Okay, well, I, I just want to agree with yeah. you that the part where he's a kid, I thought was good. I, I yeah. really liked, they, they send, uh, the, you know, there's this sort of challenge where the kids are supposed to run a loop through the woods with an egg in their mouth, and whoever makes it back first with the egg unbroken wins. And so the kids are all jostling each other and trying to, you know, cause each other to break the egg and, and so on. And Conan has uh, forced his way into this contest, even though he's really too young to be there. And then they get attacked by crazy forest-dwelling people. Uh, and all the other kids run away. And Conan keeps going on the designated course. And he walks back into the village holding the decapitated heads of four <laughs> of these forest dwellers. And then spits out the egg, which is still whole. You know, that's, that was good. That was a good... That was really, I really like that. I didn't mind the opening. But I was just a little annoyed that, okay, you're, you're starting over with Conan the Barbarian. And oh my God, because uh, then I saw where they went with it. It's really, you're going to do another origin story about Conan where he wants vengeance for his father against a sorcerer. Even though none of the Robert E. Howard stories ever gave an origin about Conan, and that was intentional. Conan is like a character that springs full-blown onto the page, kind of like how Christopher Nolan wanted the Joker to spring full-blown onto the screen in the Dark Knight, he didn't want an origin story. Okay, but we he, do we do know that Conan was born on a battlefield, right? Yeah, you hear you know you hear little bits like that, but it was just like really uh, again with the you know the same overarching outline of a plot. Conan never had this grand quest in life, so I, I did think there was some cool stuff. It was just, are you really going to make him seek vengeance against a sorcerer again? Actually, I re- I thought that part was really cool too, though that that his mother was pregnant and she gets stabbed. And so she's got to have, you know, they've got to have the baby right then. I mean, the whole scene is like, like completely like ludicrous in terms of, of realism there. Cause it's like, uh, it's like Ron Perlman's like staring into her eyes and he sort of cuts through into her stomach blindly and pulls the child out and suddenly it's born, you know? But I mean, it's a, it's like a cool scene. It's a cool idea that, you know, he's battle born, you know, he's actually cut from the womb, uh, uh, on a battlefield like I, I like that idea and and i mean that that whole like I, you know i i still like uh you know i mean regardless of the conan um you know backstory like you know i don't have the, i don't have the attachment like doug does so i mean I'm, I'm just watching it as a movie and i don't care what they're doing with it um and from that point of view like i think you know um for all the reasons that you mentioned dave like i mean i think the opening works really well and then um but also i just think like ron perlman was great um and i wish he was in the movie longer but you know, obviously, it's it's a, it's a story about Conan, not about his dad. So, to be fair, I did think that there were good set pieces in that. Uh, I liked the costumes, and I actually thought Jason Momoa. I thought he was a really good choice for Conan. You could see as I got older, I got over the whole blue eyed thing, and I thought his performance was fine for what Conan is. I just thought it was a weak script. I also wasn't crazy about uh. Conan's main love interest in this story because they really didn't know what they wanted to do with this character. You know, like in the original Conan stories, either Conan was saving the damsel in distress or he was fighting alongside some warrior woman. 
And in this one, half the time she's screaming, save me, Conan. And the other half the time, suddenly she's wielding a sword. They made her like a damsel in distress. But when she had to wield a sword, because the story called for it, it's like, oh, okay, but now she can kick some butt. Well, uh, this this movie is just, I, I think what's disappointing about it is not on its own merits, on its own merits. I think it's okay, whatever. But it, that it's a remake of the original Conan the Barbarian, which I think is so much less tepid than this one. I mean, this one just feels much more pro forma. You know, it's just like a typical Hollywood action movie, kind of. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't, doesn't really do anything interesting. I was reading, actually, you know, um, one of the characters in the movie is this uh, sort of witch girl uh, played by Rose McGowan. And she said that there's this there's this one scene where she kind of tries to seduce her father. And in this interview, Rose McGowan said that she really wanted to do more with that and that the uh, executives were just like totally freaked out by that and didn't want to touch that at all. And I think that's just symptomatic of, again, the tepidness of this movie, that it doesn't do anything crazy. It doesn't do anything shocking. It's just, yeah, you know, that is this movie. That scene actually bothers me. And not even because she tried to seduce her father. I mean, okay. I'm not endorsing that by any means, but if you want to like, you know, have something that's edible or if you want to call it an electric complex going on, that's fine. But it was almost like a red herring that they even put that in there because like you said, nothing else happens with that. So why even put it in? It sets up like a false expectation. As as tepid as it is. And overall, I agree. It definitely is a tepid film. Um, overall, uh, I'm really surprised that it's only got like a 23% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. I mean, cause Compare that to Conan the Destroyer, which is at 30%, and Red Sonja, which is at 19%. It's like, there's no way that this movie is actually only 4% better than Red Sonja. And comparing it to 77% uh, approval on the uh, the original Conan the Barbarian, which is like, I mean, Conan the Barbarian, the remake, like, I, I wouldn't have rated it much lower. I mean, because it's like, it's bad in different ways. But I mean, it's like, I don't know, it's like, as as an enjoyable film, like, I don't know, like, I, I think I probably had more fun watching the remake just because, like, at least I could enjoy the action sequences because, like, they had better production values and, like, they were more full of action, you know, as opposed to the original, which, like, you know, being made so many years ago, it's like, you know, it just doesn't look all that convincing on screen. Well, uh, one thing I did like about this is that in the act, speaking of the action scenes is that I really think for an action scene to be successful these days, the character has to do something clever. If there's just a sword fight, you know, if Conan just fights a guy with a sword and then he wins, you're like, oh, I guess he was stronger than that guy. Like, who cares? It's it's not interesting at all. And this movie did have some kind of clever things. I thought they could have been done better. But for example, Conan's friend is in a cage with a chain on it underwater. And so he wraps the chain around a guard and shoves it into the tentacled monster, which pulls the guard down under the water, lifting the cage out of the water. Like, that's good stuff. That's a good uh, action set piece right there. And also at the end that Conan, I guess, spoiler warning, Conan is, I, I guess it's not that much of a spoiler, but he, he defeats the main bad guy in the same way that his father. Ooh, had shocker. <laughs> had defeat, yeah, but he, he defeats the main bad guy in the same way that his father had defeated him as a child. You know, stuff like that was, was clever. And if it had just been kind of finessed a little bit more, it, it could have, uh, yeah, it could have been a pretty good movie. I think I probably would have liked the movie more if they didn't try and make it a remake. I mean, I mean, I kind of thought that's what they did. I mean, it kind of seemed to me more like it was a reboot rather than a remake, um, you know, because it yeah. doesn't really have much in common with the original. Um, right. But they, they did have like something called the mystery of steel in this early on, which is like definitely a weak allusion to the riddle of steel in the original movie, which was like a big thing with James Earl Jones, as the sorcerer trying to learn the riddle of steel. And then he tells Conan, no, it's flesh that is the most powerful. 
So it's like, you know, it was like they were sticking their toe in the water, but why even bother? Just, just go in a new direction. There are so many different adventures that Conan could have given the varied life that Robert E. Howard gave him. So why would you want to like have something that makes you think of something else? So, so Doug, I mean, you're, you're sort of suggesting, right, that, that these Conan films are only kind of weakly inspired by the written material. Now, is that because the written material just wouldn't translate well the way it is to film, or are they just screwing it up? And are there, like, Conan stories they should just take and film them basically the way they're written? I think it'd be hard to, like, film most of these Conan stories exactly the way they're written, just because, you know, Robert E. Howard only wrote one full-length Conan novel in his life, and even then it was a pretty short novel. So, I mean, even if you, like, just took one story and said, we want to translate this story for the movie, you would have to flesh it out. But I, I think that aside, you know, Conan, it was more of than just, you know, fighting monsters and, you know, a sorcery. There was one, like I said, that theme of civilization versus barbarism. The closest they came with any of these was the first one. And on top of that, just there was a reason H.P. Lovecraft liked Conan's stuff, uh, like Robert E. Howard's stuff so much. One of the big reasons was how much horror that Robert E. Howard would infuse into his stories. You know, you, he tried to like really give a certain primal fear into the creatures. Now, I'm not saying as a kid I was scared when I was reading it, but there was a certain level of originality to the way he presented his creatures. And something that fails to translate in these movies is the way Robert E. Howard wrote. You know, his narrative energy is really what drew so many people into his stories and why you hear so many sword and sorcery authors say they'll never be another Conan. Robert E. Howard had had some unique visions and I just, I'm dubious that anyone's ever going to be able to properly translate them. All right. So uh, we also have two non-Conan feature films that have come out based on, supposedly based on Robert E. Howard uh, stories. Uh, first up, we've got Call of the Conqueror. And this one, it just seems to me like a, an episode of Hercules, the legendary journeys. It's very hard for me to believe this has anything to do with Robert E. Howard stories. I haven't, I haven't read the call stuff, but, uh, Doug, does this have anything to do with Robert E. Howard? Next to nothing. Um, actually, the first Conan movie, the original one, probably had more to do with call than this one. Like the sorcerer Thul's of Doom, that was a sorcerer from a unpublished call story. And we already talked about, I think the serpent cult that was like from the call stories. Um, it was just, it was awful. You know, I think like the producers must have decided really early on, let's make this as much like Hercules as possible. So all the Kevin Sorbo fans will talk about how great this is because it's not much better than Red Sonia. Uh, the only reason you can even say it's better than Red Sonia is because I guess there isn't like a whole group of people that will be offended by it, except maybe movie viewers, but that goes for Red Sonia too. I mean, this it just looked like a TV show. I mean, hmm. what was the but like? Who made this movie? Like, what was the <laughs> budget? I mean, I don't even understand where this came from. You know, it's definitely it was definitely like a major release because I remember going to see this in the theater, and and the the idea that it was billed uh, or that it was geared towards you know capturing the Hercules fans, I, I can definitely see that because you know I was I know I was I must have been watching Hercules when that when the movie came out because otherwise why did I go see it? You know. But uh, I, and although I have to say that's about all I remember about the movie is that I went to go see it in the theater. I don't, I don't remember much about it otherwise. 
Um, although I think Tia Carrera is in it, right? Um, yeah, like she, like Cole, um, Cole gets made king, and Tia Carrera casts a spell on him to make him marry her, and then but she's actually a an evil witch, and uh, you know he's she steals his throne, and then he has to come back and and kill her and get it back. Yeah, I mean this movie it had. I mean, blatant disrespect for like Robert E. Howard's mythology, like Tia Carrere. She, like you said, she was a witch and like they revived her and she was from ancient Asheron, which, you know, if they read the stories, they would know that, you know, Cull was from Atlantis and then, you know, the Hyborian age followed and Asheron came after Atlantis. And it was around the same time as Stygia, which was one of the Hyborian kingdoms. So, you know, it's just they threw everything out the window and they basically just took the tiniest little bits of names and information, and they fudged together a really bad story. All right, let's not waste any more time on this <laughs> Sounds uh, good to me. <laughs> All right, so next up we got Solomon Kane. Uh, Doug, tell us about Solomon Kane, the Howard character. Solomon Kane, like I said, I thought it was much more of a complex character than Robert E. Howard's uh, Conan. He uh, was an adventurer in the late, 1500s, early 1600s, uh, from Elizabethan England. He was a Puritan adventurer and he basically saw himself as like an avenging angel of God, like not literally, but that's like the way he operated. He was out to eliminate evil, you know, help those in distress. And that almost makes him sound kind of tepid and boring. Except while Robert E. Howard never outright says it in the stories, it's completely obvious that Solomon Kane is insane. So, you know, every time he thinks that he's killing in God's name, that's a crazy dude that's committing what he thinks is good acts in God's name. And, you know, he is like fighting evil, but, you know, he basically sees himself as judge, jury and executioner, even take the name Solomon Kane. You're working with two biblical names, Solomon, which, you know, the the great wise judge from ancient Jerusalem. And then you have Cain. While the spelling is different, you have the first murderer. So it's like just murder. So, you know, he thinks he's giving just murders in the name of God. He's judge, jury, and executioner. So wait, so, are, are they real witches that he's fighting in the stories? Yes. You know, he's it's I should have mentioned that. Thank you. Uh, it's like Elizabethan times, but. There is sorcery in this world. He will fight witches, and there's a stretch where he journeys through, like, deep, dark, ancient uh, magic riddle to Africa. So it's like, it has all the feel of sword and sorcery, except it's in a more recent era. So so he is fighting actual evil witches, but not with God's sanction? Is that what you're saying? Like, a, think like a religious zealot, almost. Taken to the extreme, where it's like, He's like a force of nature, you know, and he's focused on doing certain acts, you know, to like rid the world of evil, fight injustices. But just when you encounter this guy, his intensity, it, it's clear that he's he's not well. Uh, you know, it's good. It's good for the movie that that the fantasy elements were actually present, although I, I'm kind of disappointed because like when you were starting to describe it, I was like, oh, that that sounds like actually even cooler. If in the 30s, when Howard was writing, that he was writing this character that was actually just insane, and he th- and he was imagining 
that he was killing like these evil witches and stuff, but what he was really doing was just like murdering people. Like that actually kind of sounds awesome and like subversive, like for the time period. Like I, I would have liked to see that. Yeah, what you're saying, John, that sounds pretty cool. And what Doug was saying, even if he's really fighting witches, but he's just like crazy, mm-hmm. uh, that's actually cool too. And actually knowing that that's the character in the fiction makes me like the movie a little bit less because mm-hmm. uh, I wish they had done something more along those lines. But I don't know, John, uh, what did you think of the movie just generally? Uh, you know, I actually, I, I enjoyed it. Um, I mean, I again, I don't think it's a good movie by any stretch, but um, and actually, I, I would be tempted to sort of revise my opinion um, about uh, what the best Howard movie is. I, 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 this one certainly is in the running, I would think. Like, I mean, I, I might have enjoyed it more than the original Conan, you know, overall. Because, like, I mean, I think like it has it has the best action sequences, I think, by far. Um, and, it, and it has good production values and the acting's not too bad. Um, probably it may have the best acting. Uh, I mean, the guy who plays Solomon Kane's pretty good. But, uh, you know, like, I, I mean, like his his whole body is like, you know, all scarred up and he's got like this big cross burned onto the back of his uh, onto his back. And it's like that all looked, like looked really cool. And uh, and and, you know, and it's got it's got some semblance of a plot and it kind of moves along pretty well at a good pace. I mean, it it wasn't too bad. I mean, again, it was a, it was the kind of movie that you could sort of tune out from and then tune back in and not really miss anything. But um, and I, I don't know that I would have been able to get through it if I didn't have like my phone and I could like check Twitter and stuff, you know, in between things. But. Um, but you know, I mean, it was, uh, it was not too bad as, uh, as far as, uh, sort of dumb action movies go. Yeah. I mean, I, I really like James Purifoy. He's the, he plays Solomon Kane. He plays Mark Antony in the HBO Rome series. And I think he's, oh, that is him. Okay. He's very, very good. Uh, the, the, the setup basically is that Solomon Kane has come to believe that he, uh, he's this horrible guy. He does all this violent stuff. And then he, uh, has a change of heart. And then he comes to believe that if he engages in, in any more violence, the forces of hell will find him and uh, drag him down to hell. Uh, and then he's put in a position where he has to do something violent. And that part was really affecting. I thought where the, this little boy is in trouble and he's screaming, Solomon, kill these bad guys. I know you can do it. I know you can. And Solomon doesn't want to do it. And and then, uh, you know, he's put in a position basically where he has to. And there's this weird shot where he looks up at heaven basically and says, uh, is this all I am to you? so be it then something like that Mm -hmm. and that was really interesting i and that never the movie never really did anything with that afterward but i wish it would have i I thought that was the most uh compelling part of the movie yeah it definitely had potential and in like that scene you mentioned that was one of the best scenes that definitely and i was all i was also surprised actually like you know when the when they were holding the kid and trying to force him to act like that uh in that scene um you know, they actually do kill the kid. I was mm-hmm. surprised at that too. So that was that was an unexpected uh, twist. I, I would have expected that he would uh, he would have actually made his decision to go act before that happened. Yeah, and it introduced this weird moral ambiguity to the whole situation, where you're like, wait, should he have been more violent sooner? You know, it's it's not as clear cut as most uh, movies like this you would expect. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I'm definitely with you guys. I thought James Purfoy gave a great performance. It's just the character he was portraying deviated a lot from what was in the books because Solomon Kane in the beginning of the movie is here's the same guy that's knowingly committing evil, which is completely different from what Solomon Kane is in the books. So, you know, good performance. I just, I wasn't crazy about some of the choices on the interpretation of the character. Uh, the origin story again, completely made up. And just like Conan, it's like, you know, it's, it's more interesting to me, like how these characters 
spring, you know, full blown onto the page and you, you don't know their past. And with Solomon Kane, I thought that was extra interesting because you don't know, was he born mentally imbalanced? Was there something that, you know, clicked that set him over the edge? Howard fans like talk about this and they debate it, but no one knows. And, you know, he just kind of discarded that. Honestly, I think it's a lot easier to enjoy this movie if you haven't read the source material. Sure. Um, oh, yeah, I'm sure that's true of all of these. I, I think Solomon Kane in particular, you could almost walk away saying, hey, that wasn't half bad. Whereas like Red Sonia, even if you don't know the source material, you're going to say <laughs> that was awful. The same yeah. thing with Call. Yeah, but, yeah. And this one actually like they had plans. This was supposed to be the first movie of a trilogy, assuming that this one made enough money. Yeah, so what's, I, the, what's the story on that? Do we know? Uh, did it do well at all? Or It doesn't look like it's made enough money, so I, oh. I guess that's it. No, it's kind of, it's kind of funny, though. Like, like, look at like Conan the Barbarian and, and then, like, the, you know, the Conan reboot, and it's like, well, I mean, I can't imagine that made any money, and yet, like, you know, they're going right back to that Conan well already, and it's like, so it's just kind of funny, like, how Hollywood will, they'll look at an example of something as, like, you know, oh, well, we're never going to make anything like that again. And then on the other hand, they'll also look at, you know, you'll have something like Conan. And it's like, like, they'll keep going back to it no matter, how many, no matter how many times it fails, you know. You know, well, speaking of, of that, John, did you hear that they're doing a Red Sonja remake? <laughs> what? No, really? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Rose McGowan was actually supposed to be in it. I think she's out and somebody else is in. But I think Robert Rodriguez was supposed to do it. I'm not sure if he's still involved. But yeah, it's it's I think it's scheduled even to come out before the um the new Arnold Schwarzenegger Conan movie. Wow. Well, be- I mean, it couldn't be any worse, right? I was about to say the same thing. <laughs> Although uh, it doesn't doesn't really bode well for the uh, budget of the of the project if they're talking about like Rose McGowan starring. I mean, she's like, you know, she's not exactly a, a top star and, and doesn't have a lot of uh, name recognition, really. So although I guess I guess with these kind of movies, it is hard to cast people. Um, although at least with uh, with Red Sonja, it's like, I mean, I would expect that they're they're probably not going to get somebody who's like overly muscle bound. So it's, it's not like you have to worry about that. Like, whereas with Conan, it's like, you're sort of very restricted because you need to find somebody who's very uh, built. I'll actually say that that's one nice thing I'll say about the red Sonya movie Mm -hmm. is that physically the woman who plays red Sonya looks like she could kick ass. Yeah. yeah. She's big and strong looking and is not just like a typical Hollywood actress. The drawback is that was some of the worst acting <laughs> ever saw. I mean, Actually, I'm not even exaggerating. That that movie is like almost as bad as The Happening by M. Night Shyamalan. I, I haven't seen Haywire yet, but um, you know, Haywire is that action movie uh, starring that uh, that female um, uh, mixed martial arts wrestler mm-hmm. or, or uh, mis, mixed yeah, mixed Gina Carano or something. Yeah. Uh, uh, so I mean, she's a mixed martial arts fighter and. Uh, she seems like the sort of person that could be good in that role. Um, you know, and I, uh, you know, just because you I mean, she obviously, she is an actual fighter, uh, before they cast Jason Momoa. Uh, I mean, I was actually kind of thinking like the rock would be a good fit for, uh, for Conan. No, um, no. I mean, I mean, in terms of his, in terms of his personality and like the way he delivers lines and stuff, like, I don't think he'd be good for Conan, but I mean, like he at least looks the part. Well, but I see, I don't even picture Conan as being like a big bodybuilder type, especially since there were no steroids in Hyporia. <laughs> yeah. He was kind of a He-Man, though, in the original stories. So, you know. But there's like a special, you know what I'm saying? There's like a certain bodybuilder look that nobody Absolutely. in the world would have had. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, like, like uh, people say that Arnold Schwarzenegger actually had to lose muscle mass to play Conan because his arms were so, his biceps were <laughs> so big, like he couldn't effectively swing a sword with them. Oh, wow. That's hilarious. Well, anyway, like, I mean, if 
if we take that muscle bound uh, restriction off, then uh, it seems like we we probably could have really cast a wider net and gotten gotten somebody who's actually a pretty good actor rather than just somebody who looks good with uh you know just a loincloth on or whatever. <laughs> All right, and speaking of looking good with a loincloth on, there's <laughs> nothing I want to see more than sixty five year old Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, in a loincloth uh, next year. So, uh, what do you guys think about? It's actually going to be called The Legend of Conan. It kind of makes sense, just because at the end of the original Conan the Barbarian movie, and at the end of Conan the Destroyer, they show Conan when he's older, on his throne, Mm -hmm. as Arnold Schwarzenegger, and they say, but that is another story. So, you know, the Momoa, Conan the Barbarian, that bombed. So it's like, what can we do to renew the franchise? Hey, Arnold Schwarzenegger isn't governor anymore. They've actually been trying to make this for a while. I mean, they were planning to make it before he became governor, and that's stymied mm-hmm. their plans. And then they had to make the the, the, Momoa, the Momoa version to you know do something with the um, the franchise that they'd paid all this money for and stuff. I read somewhere that originally uh, the Call movie was supposed to be a Conan movie, and then they changed it to Call because, uh, or they got Kevin Sorbo because Schwarzenegger wouldn't do it, and then uh, Kevin Sorbo he didn't want to like play a role where someone else had already played that role. So they changed the character from Conan to Cull. So it just became a steadily declining disaster. I'm not terribly uh, instilled with confidence with the idea that the Fast and Furious writer is uh, is writing the screenplay. I will right. say, I, I read an interview with that guy. I think it was that guy. And he was he was saying the right things as far as I'm concerned in terms of wanting it to be a story about an old, you know, an older Conan who's not pumped up on tons of steroids now, and he has to <laughs> rely more on his wits and his guile, and that he's developed over a lifetime of adventures and stuff, and not just punching out camels and stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think, I mean, I, I, I honestly, I have very low expectations, but if they were to do that right, that could be a really good movie. I'd be like excited if, like, let's say they got Michael Moorcock to write the script. Because as far as I'm concerned, he's like the reigning living king of sword and sorcery. But that'll never happen because that makes too much sense. But well, why why know. get Michael Moorcock when you can get the guy who wrote Fast and Furious? You got me with your legal mumbo jumbo, John. All right, cool. So I think we're going to wrap things up there. So Doug, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks again for having me, guys. And thanks again to Brandon Sanderson for being our guest today. Thanks as well to everyone who's written us five star reviews in iTunes including Venorvum in the U.S., Spinface 3000 and Borderer 3 in the U.K., Brissy D in Canada, Murray NZ in New Zealand, Asiad Ed in the Netherlands, Serenity Home in Germany, and Eric Kalfas in Japan. And also a big thanks to Juan San Miguel for becoming subscriber number 38. To see a list of all our subscribers, visit our website at geeksguideshow.com and click on PayPal. And remember to nominate all your favorite works for the Hugo Award. Geek's Guide is eligible for the Best Related Work category. I'm eligible for Best Editor. And all of the original fiction I published this year in my anthologies, or in Lightspeed or Nightmare, are all eligible in either the Novelette or Short Story category. For more information, visit johnjosephadams.com and click on Blog. Alright, so that was our show. Thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your hosts, visit johnjosephadams.com or 
davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by Slipgate 9 Entertainment. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.